Today, I'm excited to introduce Deborah Dunsire, who is very well known to our community in research and development. Deborah, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to become a leader in the pharmaceutical industry? Well, I grew up um, daughter of Scottish immigrant parents in what was Rhodesia and is now Zimbabwe, and moved to South Africa when I was going to high school, lived near Durban, um, went to medical school in Johannesburg, and ultimately practiced as a, a general practitioner in Johannesburg. I didn't mean to join industry. Um, I went there as a filler of time, moving between being a general practitioner and wanting to specialize in ophthalmology. And I had some months to kill and saw an advertisement for a clinical researcher in the pharmaceutical industry. And I went for the interview just in some ways to experience something that I would do for a short time and learn something, but that I didn't think I would do for very long. And as I joined, I was offered a position and joined Sandoz and given the responsibility for the clinical development in areas like organ transplantation, which was Sandoz's largest business at the time, dermatology, uh, oncology, endocrinology. And I worked in those fields. And after about six months, I suddenly found myself totally captivated by the concept of bringing new medicines forward and what it took on a global basis the exposure to researchers who were in the labs in Switzerland, the clinical developers, the coordination of trials across the globe needing to be placed in different countries, understanding how South Africa would fit in and being a part of that team was so enjoyable. The other thing that was particularly interesting was working with key thought leaders in these areas and being exposed to the cutting edge of science um, while working on bringing forward new medicines. So at that six-month time point, I, I suddenly said to myself, I'm having a great time with this. It's so interesting. It's so invigorating. I think that I should do this for a bit longer. And so I never did go back to take up that residency in ophthalmology. And I've been in the industry um, over 27 years now. What has influenced you in your approach to life and leadership? I think it's always one's family that has the, the earliest and probably the longest lasting impact on thinking about how you approach life. And I think having immigrant parents gives you a sense of possibility in the world and gives you a sense that you can't stay in one place. If, thing, if you want to improve things, you need to reach out and try different things. And that's what my parents did. Um, I think that they had courage leaving their, their country, moving to a, a different continent. And so for me, moving around the world has always been just a part of life was always something that was within my scope of experience. So those are very strong influences. I think the other thing that influenced me from my family perspective is my father probably wanted sons 
uh, when he had two daughters, he decided that raising them in a way that they would always be able to stand on their own feet and be confident and active in the world was very important. And so always raised us to say, you will have your own career. You will um, be able to do anything you want to do. You need to be independent, which for those days, you know, raising children in the in the early 60s um, wasn't always the case for a very traditional man having daughters. So I really admire him for having taken that that view. Yes. One of the things he always did with us was we had in dinner as a family, which is a, a, a wonderful institution, but he would take incredibly contrary positions to things that he believed in just for the sake of provoking an argument um, with us. And that taught me to really be able to engage in debate and engage in putting forward a point of view and listening to another's point of view and being able to articulate why I believed something different. And I think that instills a lot of confidence and it also instilled an ability for me as I joined companies and, and businesses that meant I wasn't a shy flower. I was prepared to put a point of view forward. And I think that's very important, particularly for women within the business world. You do have to be able to put your point of view forward and you do have to be able to inject yourself into debate and conversation. Many women I've noticed stand back and wait to be asked. And sometimes, you know, the, the, the conversation isn't a, isn't a classroom. It isn't, you know, waiting for people to raise their hands. So that I think had a, had an enormous influence in how I was able to adapt to the business environment later on. Now, as your leadership roles have evolved, what lessons have you learned about leadership? I think one of the important lessons is that tone and culture are really set by the leader, that you as, as a leader will drive an organization in, the, in a particular direction and you need to be very intentional about creating the type of culture you would like um, because otherwise you'll end up with one and it may not be what you would like. And that, I think that that piece of leadership was not as obvious um, from the outside as things like setting direction. We, we all know leaders set direction. They're, they're responsible for um, creating vision and in, and enrolling people in the vision um, and that was easier to, under, to understand and, and intuit yes but the ability to create culture and draw people into a particular way of interacting with one another around the work um, is also a critical role of leadership have there been other factors you think that helped you succeed I think that Bottom line one is hard work. Yes. 
you know, there's, there's no there's no way around around that. And the fact of the matter is, I do work hard, but it's because I enjoy it. And I think that you know the old statement that find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life, or find something you're passionate about. It is so true because then you can throw yourself into it and and do the work that's required without it feeling burdensome. Yes. Well, you know, I tend to agree with you. The hard work is uh, definitely a sort of very basic thing. The like the thing I like to say, quite honestly, when people say, you know, you're lucky to have done this. My saying is, the harder I work, the luckier, luckier I get. I get. Yeah. <laughs> my father used to say that to me all the time. <laughs> I love that and because it's so true, right? It is. It is true. Yeah. And. You know, I think the other thing that's been valuable in the pharmaceutical industry to me, I, I, I'm so grateful for the the medical training yes. that I had. I, I find that I draw on it so much and I feel daily that I'm working on behalf of patients in a way that's very different than when I saw patients as a general practitioner, um, but that is truly utilizing my skills and training to advance the health of people facing diseases around the world. Um, so I, I, I really value the training that I have. The other piece of things that have enabled me um, to succeed, I think, are having strong analytical skills and great curiosity. Uh, I think whenever we, and you heard from me earlier on how when I joined Sandoz, suddenly you know it, it was captivating to be exposed to all of these different disciplines. Yes. And the curiosity to understand what did each of these disciplines do? How do they contribute? Not that I have to be an expert, uh, but really seeing the immensity of the complex contributions coming from different disciplines to make a new medicine is something that still thrills me today. Now, tell me uh, about your time at Forum uh, when you led there. Tell me about what, what, what you learned from that experience. Forum was a, a great experience and a real challenging one in many, on many different levels. The first thing I learned going there is that Leading in smaller companies is not the same in leading in mid-size or, or very large companies. And that's true because there's so many fewer people. So people are playing uh, multiple roles and you have to be able to roll up your sleeves and dive in to a level of detail that you might not have had to do for many years mm -hmm. in a bigger company. Yep. And that is something one has to get one, one's head around as a leader. The other part of it was figuring out how you build the team for an incredibly complex undertaking like running the six phase three trials we were running. And while you're doing that, in big, bigger companies, you have the luxury of a scale in the organization that means you've always got some capacity. Somebody's finishing one body of work and can pick up 
um, against another project that's ramping up. So you have a lot more um, flex in the capacity in a in a big organization, and that's really not true in a smaller organization. So we really had to actively work on integrating new people and building a forum culture. The other thing that changes from big to bigger to smaller organizations is the is process. There's much less process available or in place in a smaller organization. And as that growth ramps up, process becomes more and more necessary. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a critical job of work to figure out how to introduce standard process into an organization without killing it. Yep. So as a leader, I really had to think about what process do we want? Why do we want it? What do we want it to look like? Um, because process is necessary, but it can also be initiation of bureaucracy, which nobody wants. So there were many, many different leadership lessons that I guess I hadn't expected I would have to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, one might be fooled into thinking leading in a smaller organization is easier than leading in a bigger organization. There are many facets that challenge you in in a totally different way. And for me, my passion has always been around creating new medicines for people who don't have adequate therapy. And our treatment of CNS and psychiatric disease is woefully behind where we need it to be. So you would definitely advocate for more funding there, just like oncology's had as well, correct? Absolutely. We are so underfunded in diseases of the mind, diseases of the CNS. And I was struck by that, actually. The first um, Alzheimer's international meeting that I went to, it was a small meeting. It, it was global. Yeah. But... Compared to an oncology meeting, when you go to ASCO and Chicago, yes. twenty-five to thirty thousand people. Yes. At that particular Alzheimer's International uh, Convention, there might have been four thousand people. Yeah. And I looked at that and I said, "Oh my goodness, this is the emblem of the lack of funding. When you don't have funding, you don't get researchers, you don't get new data, you." How is this field going to advance? Yeah, absolutely. But I think the good news is it seems the governments and others have really uh, finally realized this and sort of increasing funding. Well, that that is the the benefit. The challenge is it it's going to take a long time, and we yeah. we don't really have time. Yes, absolutely. Now, based on your experience leading different organisations, are there things you would do differently with hindsight? Well, I think if if the answer to that was no, there's nothing I'd do differently, <laughs> then you've probably missed the point of life, which is always to learn to yep. and to grow. So, you know, I'll, I'll give you the funny example of mm-hmm. something I learned at, at Millennium. Mm-hmm. Um, we needed to cut costs and were, we went through a restructuring. There, there were many ways which we were addressing um, the cost profile of the organization. And during management meetings, we'd uh, 
be often asking, okay, are there any other ideas? What do we, what else can we think about that helps us deploy the capital we need to drive um, the launch and growth of Velcade as well as make sure we keep our development pipeline and research moving forward, but we're taking out unnecess- any, any unnecessary cost. And somebody came up with an idea that, gosh, in the refrigerators all around the the campus, we stock them with milk and, and we, it costs us, I forget, it may have been $80,000 a year. And we decided we'd go to these tiny little creamers, uh, long life creamers in plastic buckets mm-hmm. and take away the milk. Well, it created an absolute furore within the company and people felt that really the company was, was in desperate trouble. And it shook the organization in a way that I couldn't have possibly imagined and that $80,000, saving $80,000 could not possibly be justified. And so we did the right thing as an executive committee. We reintroduced the milk and, you know, with a campaign called Got Milk with an exclamation (laughs) point. But I think what I took away is that when you want the hearts and minds of your people addressing you know the the big problems of the organization people are prepared to to do that and weigh in but you also have to think through how do you how do you keep their hearts and minds and if you're going to if you're going to change things that are important to people it needs a process it needs time it needs engagement and Sometimes small things matter a lot. So it was a very useful lesson. Going forward, if you need to change a particular touchstone of an organization where people are used to it and like it, I know that I will approach that in a more systematic and thoughtful way um, in the future. That's really interesting. I like that example. Thank you. What do you think at the moment are the current challenges for both, you know, pharma and biotechs? What, what do you think are our biggest challenges going forward? Well, I think we live right now at such an exciting time where there's so many advancements in biology and in technology. I think about gene editing. I think about immuno-oncology having come to a, a totally new place. You know, people have been focused on immuno-oncology and, and why can't we get the immune system to attack cancers? Why do cancers get uh, a pass from the immune system? For decades, now we're seeing some successes. There's still more to go. So I think that there's tremendous opportunity there. There's also a tremendous challenge because as these new technologies like the gene editing technologies come forward, we know that any new technology has, takes a circuitous path. We don't know what we don't know yet about these new technologies. And, and some of the things that look incredibly promising, we then bump into roadblocks. And I, I reflect back on the Human Genome Project and Millennium's inception around now we the, the human genome has been sequenced, we'll understand how genes cause disease and we'll be able to fix it. Well, that it's taken 25 years and we're 
still scratching the surface of that. So new technologies will make a difference. They're going to be incredibly impactful, but it won't be a straight line. So I think the challenge is not to get ahead of ourselves, just let's continue to be excited and use these technologies, but know that it's not going to be a quick fix for for everything. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one challenge. I think the challenge of now we're through a period of time where many very important medicines have gone generic and are therefore available to society for very low cost. We went through that period of maybe five years where there were large drugs going generic and therefore reducing the cost of drug therapy. And the launches that came in that period of time were able to be priced and funded because there was some give in the system. Now we're kind of through the big generic expiries and there's still all of these new launches. And I think society as a whole will have to wrestle with, okay, how are we going to pay for, continue to pay for this innovation and be able to bring it forward? So I, I do think that's going to be a challenge over the, over the coming uh, decade. And we'll find ways. And I'm, a, I'm an optimist at, at heart. Um, but I, I think it's some, a, a challenge that we'll have to wrestle with. How do you think pharma and drug developments might be different in the future? Well, the, the holy grail of being able to select the right patient for the right medicine and not treat people who are not going to benefit mm-hmm. has made progress, but I think it will make much more progress in the coming decade. As those technologies become available to really, for instance, understand what are the driver mutations of a cancer and before a patient gets any treatment, know that and target their therapy appropriately. That will change the way we do clinical trials um, in oncology. Um, I think technologies that look at imaging the brain, for instance, in ways that look at functional imaging, maybe step along the path to how do we obviate some of the difficulties in psychiatric and CNS research that we've had to date. Um, as we're, we're able to really see what's happening in the brain in a different way. So I think that we'll have more technically enabled patient selection and monitoring of therapeutic effect. The other thing that's going to be tremendously interesting is the ability to handle massive data sets and really cull out of large data sets potential signals, for instance, of benefit or particular risk groups. Um, so I, I see the, the data analytics and the, the convergence of the electronic medical record being able to be interrogated across truly millions of, of patients mm-hmm. as yielding potentially new target subgroups or a new understanding of why certain groups get side effects will be able to interrogate data in a different way. 
How do you feel about a future where drug development really gets integrated into clinical care, where really patients are giving a state on an ongoing basis with sensors, et cetera, and drug development becomes just dipping into that data stream, you know, needed and maybe adding some extra things? I I think that's the vision of the of the future. It's one of those things that's going to take time to get to and we'll we'll have to have the regulatory science. Yeah. Um, around that also. But when I think about our own experience at Forum with, you know, delivering a pro-cognitive agent across 200 sites, 16 countries, bringing patients into a site for cognitive testing that took multiple hours, that process is so intrusive that it can't help but have an effect on the patient. And if we were able to keep patients in their environment at home, potentially, for example, doing the testing online um, or through a sensor, not even not even doing a cognitive test, doing mm-hmm. some kind of yep. a sensing, yep. um, I think that we would have an opportunity to see outcomes that we wouldn't ordinarily see because the way we do trials now is intrusive. And so where you lack hard endpoints like survival, you you are perturbing the the patient's circumstance in a way that will potentially have impact. Now, to end, I have another question for you. I have many friends who grew up in Africa and you mentioned your background, you know, Everyone I know who um, grew up in Africa absolutely loves Africa. They're very loyal to Africa. Tell us what you love about Africa. You know, why is it that people just who grew up there just love it so much? For me, one of the things that I, I miss about it is the wide openness in a way. When I, when I think about growing up in Zimbabwe, the ability to get out of the of the cities into places that were very wild is unparalleled in my experience and i haven't lived all over the world so you can connect with nature in a in a different way the climate is also so conducive to being outdoors so people live outdoors a lot, which brings you in into community. Um, and I, I think that one experiences community in life there in a different way than I, than I certainly have here. Mm-hmm. And the diversity, you know, the, the ethnic majorities that, that live in Africa, as well as the immigrants to Africa, bring such diversity of culture of language of music of food that it it has a tremendous uh, tapestry of diverse culture that's very enjoyable the people are just tremendous to be around people who there seems to be a willingness to help another person in a way that i haven't experienced elsewhere Really appreciate that, Deborah. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you and understanding your background and what lessons you've had at leading companies. 
I want to thank you again. And um, that ends our podcast for today. Thank you. Thanks, Amir. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for joining me on the CNS Summit podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player and stay tuned for more conversations with leaders from the CNS Summit. I'd love to see you at our next summit, so visit cnssummit.org to find out more.